We are starting, though, with an update on what is happening with the Amanda Todd case. As you'll recall, the man on trial for uh, being a predator, for for harassing Amanda Todd online, was recently handed a 13-year sentence in a court in this province. But there are now concerns he may never have to serve that time. And joining me to talk more about that is Amanda Todd's mother, Carol Todd. Carol, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, not a problem. Always a pleasure. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the latest in this? I think people will remember uh, Aiden Coban getting a 13-year sentence and a lot of people thinking uh, very pleased that the sentence was more than what even Crown was asking for. But can you talk to us a little bit? You now have concerns about whether or not he's going to serve that time. Yeah, we were all very happy that he got 13 years, which was more than um, Crown Prosecution asked for, and definitely not what defense asked for. So we all left the courts that day um, jubilant, I guess. And during the time, about a week later, I received or I saw a news article printed from the Netherlands from a reporter that I've met before. And she'd done some investigation and it came out that um, there's a, there was a possibility that due to Dutch laws, Aiden wouldn't have to serve any of the Canadian sentence. Now, that's really difficult for some people to understand. It took me a while to process it. And so in Dutch laws, you can't be reconvicted, resentenced, re-imprisoned for a crime that you committed that's similar to another crime you committed in the same time period. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So um, Amanda, him victimizing Amanda happened at the same time he victimized his other victims. Um, so that's the fear. The 13 years he got in Canada will be brought down to zero. But I, we don't know. Maybe the courts will do something different. Maybe the extradition lawyer that this reporter talked to was wrong. We can only hope. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. Did you get any sense then from your legal team or, or Crown, I suppose, here in that you would think they they would have known that when pursuing the case and when getting this conviction that that they would have known that there was this law or Dutch law that, that might have come into play? I've thought of that too, um, especially back um, eight years ago in 2014 when it was first announced through the RCMP press release that a uh, man had been caught and that man ended up being Aiden Caban. And then we found out that um, Canada was gonna, going to pursue extradition of him so he could stand trial here. I would have thought they would have known all that, but I don't have those answers. I mean, that was eight years ago and the process has been long. Um, my The other question that pops into my head too is that no one knew if the trial was going to end up in, with a guilty verdict either, right? Right. So um, the bright light in all this, and I look at the half empty, half full, the bright light in all this, even though our, we've gone, if you get nothing, um, I mean, our family's gone through this part of it for eight years, right? Is that the guilty verdict, 13 years, the other um, standards the judge put in place um, is good for moving forward with other exploitation, um, child sexual offense trials that might go forward from here on in. Um, case law has been set with the 13 years. That's, that's, I mean, some people may think that's not very much, but when you look at old prior cases, 13 years is a lot. So um, it can only raise that bar also, um, and it, it gives just judges um, something to look at to um, convict and sentence other people, other predators. So that's a good thing. 
that is definitely yes. that that this case, right. like you said, has has set precedent for for any potential cases. It must, though, leave you with with some sense of anger, or I don't know if that's the right word. Having gone through this portion of this, getting that thirteen year sentence, and then hearing that it might not happen at all. For me, it's frustration. <laughs> frustration that that the laws are like this um, against online sexual offenders and sexual offenders, exploiters, whatever, because the message is we shouldn't let them get away. And and what my anger moment is, is that if he doesn't get any time in in the Dutch legal system, um, how's that going to look on them in the Netherlands? Because he's a sexual offender, right? Um, the laws in Europe are, are really different. And I was, I've been trying to find out if um, even there's, a sex offender registry in Europe, and I don't believe, I believe there's many countries out there that don't have it at all, unlike Canada, right? So Canada has done its due diligence with with the trial, with the sentencing, with the conviction, Um, and he was on a temporary, the Canada temporarily borrowed Aiden Coban for this trial, and so we can't keep him for that reason. Um, and so now it's back into the Dutch system. But I would hope that, I hope that we're wrong, right? Right. Because one, one, I stared at him for, <laughs> I looked at him for nine weeks plus. And in my mind, there was not an ounce of remorse. There was not an ounce of realization that yes, I'm guilty. There was just a smugness of, of him walking into the courtroom and walking out of the courtroom that I saw. And in my heart of hearts, when he's released, and if he doesn't get any Canadian time in the Netherlands, he may be released on early parole next summer, or he will be released in finality, like his sentence will be finished um, the summer of 2024. And he'll be let out to do whatever he does best, which is predate on young children and or children and um, adults. And what is the status right now? Because, and you touched on this, I would imagine there would be people that say, well, wait a minute, he was sentenced to 13 years in Canada. Why not just serve that sentence in Canada? Uh, you mentioned why that can't happen. Where Where is he right now? And as far as being sent back to the Netherlands to deal with whatever is going to happen there? Well, I understand in the sentencing hearing, um, defense mentioned he was in the North Fraser um, pretrial center remand center. So I assume that's where he is. Um, on October 14th, I was sentencing, um, it was stated that that the system, our, our legal system had 45 days to get him back home, which is in the Netherlands. Um, today is like day, I don't know, 41 maybe. Um, I, I calculated it out that either day 44 or 45 would be um, on November 27th, and November 27th is would be Amanda's 26th birthday. Hmm. So um, hmm. we only have a few more days that he could possibly be here because um, under under the laws, he has to be home. I don't know what happens on day 46 if he were here. I really right. don't know. <laughs> um <laughs> But when I was sitting in court, it didn't sound great that you know, like he shouldn't be here on day 46. So I, I wonder, you know, is he gone or and no one's told me um, or has he landed at home? I don't know. I'm just waiting to see what, what happens. Is there a requirement or, or was there an agreement that you would be told when he is sent back to the Netherlands? No, I just ask. Right. You know what? I've gone through this. And I think of this as, you know, Amanda's story from day one, how, how, you know, the evening of her death and her video went viral and all the different parts of Amanda's when she was alive, how it, it her story's been told and how it's helped or um, how people have gravitated towards it. And so I, I just can't leave my, this story in the courtroom. I need to know um, 
when he's back there. I want to know when the hearing is. I want to know what happens. And I definitely want to know um, when he gets set free, right? Yeah. Um, because others have said to me, you think he'll go back online and then start to like find me and harass me? And I never really thought of that. And that could be a possibility because Amanda's case has made his life more difficult. And it also put his image out on um, media because um, we got the publication ban of, on Amanda's name lifted. So his picture could be published because in Dutch, in the Dutch laws or in the Netherlands, they weren't able to put a picture of him or even print his last name according to their um, media standards. So because of Amanda's story, his first, his last name, pictures of him, pictures of his home and where he lived and all these details came out. So the world knows mm -hmm. that Aiden Caban is a is a international predator now. And <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't like being that. Uh, no. He picked the wrong mom to pick up. He, he, did, he picked the wrong girl and the girl had, Amanda had the right mom because we persevered in um, bringing exploitation to extortion to light, right? So Amanda's, Amanda's name is known globally for what happened to her. Well, uh, I hope, like you said, that maybe that was a mistake, that uh, he won't serve that time in the Netherlands. But, Carol, we will definitely be following along and following up on this. And thank you, uh, as always, thank you so much for talking with us today. And thanks for being so open and receptive and, and sharing the story because it's about awareness, right? We learn, we learn about awareness through real-life stories. So you're, you're, all, you're a part of that, too. All right, Carol, thank you again so much. Okay. Well, ridership is up. We're going to take a look at those numbers. But as well, TransLink is launching a new initiative. It is to encourage employers to subsidize transit for their employees. It is called the Transit Friendly Employer Certification. And to tell us more about this and how it is going to work, we are joined by TransLink CEO Kevin Quinn. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is a really interesting program. So hoping you can tell us more about the Transit Friendly Employer Certification. How is this going to work? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we just yesterday launched our Transit Friendly Employer Program to, you know, really help make uh, employee travel throughout the region easy, affordable, and, and climate friendly. And so what we're doing is we're partnering with uh, organizations of all sizes across the region, really encouraging them to provide uh, subsidized uh, transit passes for their employees. And, and in exchange for this, we'll give them a, a kind of stamp of approval, right? A certification that they are a transit-friendly employer. Uh, and so we're really excited about this. And so what would they actually have to do then? I know it's different depending on the size of the company, but how do companies actually then take part in this? Yeah, that's right. So we're asking em employers to um, pay at least 50% of the cost for a, a monthly or a stored value compass pass. Um, uh, large employers need to enroll 10% of their staff, small employers, 25% of their staff. Uh, and so in, in, in doing so, I think it's, I, I think it's a great tangible action that, that companies can really take, organizations can take to really show that they're doing their part to combat climate change and, and congestion, which we know is a, just a growing problem in our region. And so if companies sign up then, and like you said, so if they, the larger ones, so a company with more than 200 staff members sign up at least 10% mm -hmm. of their employees, smaller ones, 25%, how do you kind of check that? Or how do you know that a company has met those thresholds? Yeah, so we, we work with them to, you know, verify that and we look at the programs that they have in place and their, their policies that they have in place and work with them to just kind of verify that, that they're doing that. Um, and then, uh, you know, we stay in touch with them and, and we're going to really be evaluating this program uh, over the next year to take a look at how many uh, employers are signing up, how many employees are sort of affected throughout the region to really uh, gauge the success and the impact of this. And we think it, it's going to have a great impact.
And, and how would it work as well if you have employees, say some employees that have a monthly pass because they maybe commute a bigger distance and other employees that maybe or maybe work at home part of the time as well. So only really commute, say, a couple of days a week or employees that only use stored value on their cards and, and commute maybe a couple times a week. How how will companies then know how or how would it work then to subsidize at least 50 percent? Yeah, I think, you know, every, it's a great, it's a great point because every rider is different, uh, and, and traveling different times, uh, you know, throughout the week and throughout the month. And so we, we look to employers to really work with their employees on that. And, and we have some tools available to help them, you know, have those conversations. Uh, but, you know, uh, as they work through that with their employees, um, you know, we'd be able to, uh, you know, continue that certification process. Had you ha- or have you at this point? I know it's brand new and just launched, but have you had much feedback from companies or, or workplaces that are interested in this? Yes, absolutely. We we actually just yesterday, as part of our um, big announcement of this program, also announced our first few uh, people who are first organizations that are really taking us up on this and that have signed up, including uh, Intel, uh, Lush Cosmetics, the Provincial Health Services Authority. Uh, YVR, uh, as well as Solidime Technology. So some companies already signing on our sort of founding members um, that are really coming out strong and making that commitment to show that they're taking that tangible action. And and the other feedback that I'll just say that we've gotten from employers is that, you know, uh, Gen Z, millennials, you know, they're really looking for organizations that are taking a stand in combating climate change and are doing something about it and that they expect companies to do this. And so I think it's also a real attraction and retention tool in this really tough labor market that we're in. You know, every company is looking for that edge to get those great employees. And I think this can really be part of the puzzle there. And what about smaller businesses? Uh, You mentioned some of these companies that uh, have signed on and are are ready to go ahead and do this. But for smaller businesses that are dealing with uh, still coming back from the pandemic, maybe they don't have all that many employees. Uh, They're dealing uh, with wages and increased costs. Uh, Do you anticipate that there might be not as many of the smaller companies because it would be an added cost. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, you know, uh, we are working with smaller companies to kind of understand the impact. I, you know, the other thing we've heard from employers is uh, both small and large is that some of them may be able to reduce their parking costs. You, you know, with employees maybe coming back, as you noted, just maybe a couple of days a week, maybe some employers uh, that, uh, you know, I know, uh, are, are starting to take a look at their um, uh, parking policies, how many parking spaces they have leased, and uh, they may be able to save some on the parking side and actually maybe put that towards transit passes uh, for their employees. So I think there there could be some offsetting savings. And and I think you mentioned this or kind of how companies will deal with it, because I guess it would be easier if you've got a, a monthly pass, you can easily see what 50% of that is. But I'm curious, then, is it is it encouraging companies then not only for when people are coming to and from work, but using transit all of the time and that if you're using a stored value card and you're using transit to go other places, that would still potentially fall into the 50%. Yeah, yeah, it, it it absolutely would. I you know I think we want folks on on transit and out of their cars as as much as possible. Um, what we know is that you know transit especially plays this critical role in moving people to and from work. Uh, you know around the region, and about twenty percent of the work trips in this region are made by public transportation. So I think certainly we're looking to target uh, those work trips and and make those uh, more car more uh, transit trips and less car trips. But at the same time, I think you're right. I think there are going to be these ancillary benefits that we see where people are taking transit then, you know, with that pass, with their employer supporting that, perhaps uh, non-work trips as well. And can you talk a little bit about the numbers? Uh, and uh, I know that this program, uh, I believe, first of its kind in Canada, uh, tr- uh, TransLink is also doing really well as far as getting ridership back. Uh, even anecdotally, uh, this morning on my way into the office, it was packed on the Canada line. Yeah. Uh, so what what are the numbers looking like as kind of this post or, or coming out of the pandemic ridership return? Absolutely. So, you know, I'm really proud to say that TransLink is, is leading North America in ridership recovery. We're uh, right around 80, 81 percent uh, ridership recovery compared to pre-pandemic levels. And, uh, I, you know, some interesting trends are coming out of that. You know, week, uh, weekdays uh, are not as high as weekends. You know, on, on the weekends, ridership is back to 85, 86 percent 
Uh, on weekdays, it's closer to the high 70s and kind of averages out to that 80, 81% number. We're also seeing differences in geographic regions. So, you know, for example, south of the Fraser uh, is over 100% ridership recovery. In other words, we're moving more people today uh, in Surrey than we were before the pandemic, which I think is absolutely incredible. And so, you know, these numbers that we're seeing, you know, it's on us, it's on TransLink to, to adjust to that. We've made some service reallocations all across the region to respond to these differences in, in geographies and how they're um, coming back to the system. Uh, and we've got to continue to respond. But we're incredibly proud, incredibly excited of the ridership recovery uh, that we're seeing now. And I think we expect that to, to continue on a, a solid upward trajectory. Does that change anything then as far as the the 2050 plan or, or even the plan for the next 10 years? Uh, I know uh, we were talking with the, the yeah. mayor's council and uh, saying that they want shovels in the ground and work to be done. Uh, but yeah. seeing that change in, in ridership, does that change any of the priorities? Well, I, I, I don't know. that I don't think it changes any of the priorities. I think what it underscores and, and where I you know absolutely agree with the mayor's council is is the need for action now. The, the idea really here that there's there's not a second to waste. Uh, we've got a great vision, a great plan with our 10-year priorities that really lays out a great vision for uh, the next 10 years of projects like doubling bus service and introducing bus rapid transit to the region. These are all big things that we want to do. Um, and as that ridership is coming back so strong, I think what it tells me is there's some real urgency behind this, emergency to act and to move now to build those projects to set us up for the growth that we're going to have in the future uh, of this region. All right. Uh, and uh, one uh, question I didn't ask you about the, the friendly employers. Is this going to be company driven and that companies will apply to TransLink or is it employees that kind of go to their companies and say, hey, we'd really like to, to get this going? Or how do you how do you see that kind of playing out? Yeah, I, I think there are definitely some employees that are going to bring this to um, their company's attention and, and to say, hey, this is a great program. And uh, we'd like you to apply for this. I think there are other companies that are going to take the initiative on our on their own. And uh, I think it's going to happen in a couple different ways, just based on some of the conversations that I'm having so far. So we're encouraging folks to go to our website, translink.ca slash transit friendly, and, and people can get more information there. And uh, we really look forward to working with everyone on this great initiative. All right, Kevin Quinn, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Sure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, Premier David Eby has announced the province is investing $230 million, that's over the next three years, to help RCMP jurisdictions in B.C. It allows us to act on priorities, like hiring additional officers in specialized units, such as the Major Crimes Section, the Sexual Exploitation of Children Unit, and the B.C. Highway Patrol. These units serve urban and rural communities across the province. And as you heard there, this funding will be going to a number of remote rural and indigenous communities to help fill staffing gaps. It will also add more Mounties to specialized units that are investigating complex and organized crime. The goal is to reach full staffing levels of 2,602 officers. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Rob Ferrer, Pacific North Board Director with the National Police Federation. Rob, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jill. What is your response to this funding and the $230 million announcement? Uh, well, it's, it's very welcome. Um, I think, you know, I can start with, with that. Uh, it's great to see the, the province uh, putting in this funding that's going to help, you know, public safety across the province. A lot of these remote communities where our officers are stationed, and, you know, the RCMP is the provincial police force in B.C., so it's great to see this, this funding. We're, we're very pleased. Are there specific areas? I know when the announcement was made, and as I just said, so it's it's talking about remote, rural, and indigenous communities and filling those staffing gaps. Are there particular places, though, or specific areas where you think this money is needed that would be the priority? Well, so the provincial, the way that the the funding model, without getting into too much depth within the province, works is communities under five thousand are are part of that. So. That's where this funding, as I understand it, I haven't, you know, I don't know all the specific details, but from as we understand it, that's where most of this funding is targeted is for small communities under 5,000 people. So that'll be up in the remote and, as you said, Indigenous communities, which are some of the more, more challenging uh, places 
to do policing, especially when you're you're understaffed. And, and if there's a major event that comes in, additional funding going towards, you know, uh, homicide investigations that, you know, are, again, have extra challenges when you're talking about remote areas. And when we're talking about vacancies in the more remote areas, these small and more rural communities, how much of an issue is it that there are longstanding vacancies? Well, it's certainly an issue. Um, you know, the the members in these places have done, you know, an exceptional job. But, you know, when you do have a vacancy in a in a small detachment, and I've, I've myself I've policed in, in a number of them over over two decades. And when you do, if you have a five person detachment and you have a vacancy, let alone two vacancies, you know, you're, you're getting down to almost 50 percent vacant. You know, it takes it's it takes a big toll on on the members who continue to you know do all they can do. Um, but this additional funding to get those extra resources and fully staffed will be, you know, excellent right across the board. And is the reason then for longstanding vacancies, is it a money issue or is it that that, that can be fixed by this, uh, this injection of cash or is it that people don't want to go and work in these smaller and more rural communities? Well, it's certainly not one thing. Um, you know, certainly this, this additional money will, will make a big difference. There hasn't been an increase in the provincial budget line for, for the provincial part of the policing uh, in, you know, over a decade. So certainly that is one of the issues. There are other issues, you know, with, with changing demographics and, and interest in, in policing in small uh, communities. Um, certainly that's also uh, a challenge right across, across the country, frankly, with all police forces. Um, but, but I think the bigger of the two issues is certainly the funding. How does it work then as well with, with vacancies? And if you're an RCMP member, can you be transferred or be told that you're going to work in this region now because there is no staff, there isn't anyone there? And, and do you get a choice in that? Or can people be deployed and told you are now working in this community? Well, uh, I guess technically, yes. However, the reality is our members... Uh, choose where they want to police. You know, they there's a, an internal system where you you say where you want to go, and out of depot you get posted wherever you get posted. Generally, but you have some choice in that as well. But then, as your career goes on, as I said, I've I've transferred myself eleven times, and I was never once told this is where you're going. It was always a discussion, and and always where I chose to go. So there's a lot of opportunities to go and try and experience different parts of Canada. It's one of the one of the benefits I would suggest of being in the RCMP. Right. And, and seeing those areas and those communities, uh, Rob, I'm wondering as well about the, the other deployments and the money uh, being, we're being told that it will also go to specialized areas, uh, major crime investigations, mm-hmm. uh, sexual exploitation of children, highway patrol. Uh, how much of an issue is it there as far as those areas also being understaffed? Well, that's also an issue. Um, and it's an issue that's in policing generally right now. Um, but, you know, when you take on, um, you know, an area that's not in a major center and you take on, uh, you know, a homicide investigation or a sexual exploitation file, you know, the resources that are required now with additional court requirements and sting comb and all the different requirements now that, that exist, um, they're huge and onerous. And, and so the, the investigations become more and more complex and the resource requirements as a result become more and more uh, taxing. So, all of that will be very welcome, uh, absolutely, in, in those units as well. And you mentioned as well, so this is communities with 5,000, a population of 5,000 or less. So this isn't going to have an impact, or, or would it, on places like Surrey or bigger cities? Well, you know, I think it all, there is a trickle-down effect. So we have one of the things that the RCMP office is that, is that surge capacity. So there are times when you may need officers from, from a larger area to go and assist when for example, you have a homicide in a small community, um, you know, the expertise may not be there. So you may need people to come who have that expertise. So with the additional funding going towards those, that will be sort of a designated team as opposed to having to um, provide it from other municipalities. So, so all of it uh, will factor into each other. Right. And the number itself, I mean, $230 million sounds like a lot of money. Is that enough for over three years to deal with these issues? You know, I, I don't know if I want to get too much into uh, into that. I, you know, I haven't had really enough time to go through and see exactly the plan as to where. But it, certainly, it's a, a very welcome 
injection into uh, the Provincial Police Force of BC, absolutely. All right. Uh, Rob, thank you so much, as always, for joining us and for talking more about this today. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jill. Have a good day. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, we are talking now about what is happening with open net fish farms and talking about this today because we've seen some action on this front just south of the border. Washington joining California, Oregon and Alaska in banning fish farming with open net pens, saying that they cause too much danger or they pose too much danger to wild salmon. So we wanted to talk with those in this province to find out what BC might be doing. And joining us to do that is Brian Kingzett, Science and Policy Director with the BC Salmon Farmers Association. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, When we look at what's happening in Washington now joining these other uh, states in banning fish farming with open net pens, I'm curious, what is your response to that? And are there any plans for similar action in BC? Okay, so a uh, couple of things. First of all, um, Alaska actually uses open net pens as well, except they do that in a form of enhancement where they grow fish to a larger size, uh, hatchery fish, and then they release them into the open ocean so that they can then catch them when they come back to the natal stream. So fix that, that, inc- that correction for a second. Or first. Second is that in Washington State, we can't really talk to Washington State. We talk more about BC. But what I can say is that the decision in, in recent decision in Washington State um, is being fairly hotly debated because the U.S. federal government just came out with a study saying that actually the fish farms in Washington State did not create a risk to wild salmon. So the the state has gone against the federal government. There's not a plan to do that in British Columbia, but we are going through this process of transition um, that was announced by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And that's the transition, is it, when we look at kind of the, the Broughton Archipelago and transitioning in those areas? Yeah, so a few things happening. So one in the Broughton, so first of all, is that uh, sound farmers in British Columbia are working with their First Nation partners and the First Nations they do. So the, and, and we've been transitioning for a long time. The, the industry is young. It's technology driven. So a salmon farm today does not look like a salmon farm did five years ago or 10 years ago. And I suspect that that in another five or 10 years, they will look different. There's been a lot of confusion because the federal government stated it was going to be a transition from open net pens. And everybody assumed that that was a transition out of the water. But um, right now, the language from uh, the minister, Joyce Murray, Uh, has changed from out of the water by 2025 to now wanting transition. This is incremental improvements to reduce the risk and interaction with wild salmon. And that is a goal that all the industry wants as coastal residents and our First Nation partners want. The other thing that is happening is that um, there's about 17 First Nations that are heavily involved in the industry. Um, So they want the industry to stay in their territories and some other First Nations um, have decided that they don't want salmon farms in their territories. So that's, uh, for example, the Broughton Archipelago, where there's been a stage removal of farms from those areas. And and the industry, as part of our sort of efforts on reconciliation, are, are going along with that. Um, and last week it was announced that, you know, Greek Seafood, one of the local seafood companies, uh, is moving out of the Seashell uh, Nation territories. Um, because the nations have decided that they don't want to host those farms anymore. So those discussions are happening, and um, as First Nations exercise their rights and title, we're seeing you know, some nations that really want the, the farms and the jobs and opportunities that come and feel, that, or feel confident that they're not a risk to wild salmon. Other nations are taking a different route, and we're good with that either way. There seems to be uh, every time there is a new study or this this comes about on the one hand, and in this case, this is a study published uh, led by UBC saying that they looked at samples from salmon waste from fish farms, both in BC and the US, and, and found traces of the virus PRV that's believed to be widespread and could be dangerous. But then we hear also that, uh, like you said, other studies or other voices that say, well, actually, there's no conclusive 
of evidence and that's not as it's not uh, having this widespread danger like some other groups would say. Uh, so I think it, it can be confusing. It can be difficult for people to, to try and, and figure out what exactly are we dealing with here? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in a normal process, you know, uh, scientists, you know, do research, put forward hypotheses and test those hypotheses and, and, and just, you know, and discuss those. And, and in, the, in, you know, like a lot of the natural resource sector in BC, you know, we have a fair bit of polarization and, and science is one of the things that is sort of being used to sort of drive some of that polarization, unfortunately, in, in, in UEC. And, and some of the authors on that recent paper are, have been fairly involved in in protesting, uh, you know, as as opponents of the fin fish industry for a while. So let me just sort of back the, that whole thing up. So the first thing is, is that viruses are very common in seawater. In fact, they're highly abundant. If you take a teaspoon of seawater, it, it actually typically would contain about 50 million viruses. And most of them are extremely harmless. They control bacterial cycles. Um, so I don't want to get too geeky about that. But, you know, um, pathogens and marine animals are a very, very small fraction of marine viruses. The virus that this latest study is talking about is a virus called PRV, or piscine rheovirus, and it has a number of forms um, as we have been discovered globally. In some areas, other areas of the world, it, it causes a, um, a swelling of the heart in Atlantic salmon. The form that we have in British Columbia, and this is debated, does, has, has, does not produce that effect. And we've had two very large, but is it, uh, you know, because it's been brought up as a virus of concern, we've had two very large studies in 2015 and 2019 by the Canadian Science Advisory Secretariat, which is sort of the large federal process that provides science advice to federal regulators. Both of those studies determined that all the current research that it posed, um, this is a federal government term, less than minimal risk to, to wild Pacific salmon. The the current and another study in 2020 and then again in 2021 actually took that virus isolated and then injected into both Atlantic salmon and Pacific salmon and were a- unable to find that. So that's sort of where the, the official status is. There is another group of scientists that believe that this is pathogenic and um, and are using a very um, this recent study, which is a method study. And this is where it gets confusing is using a very sophisticated new study that allows you, allows you to find bits and pieces of DNA in the environment, so in, in water. So they, um, And this is a very widespread virus. It's, it's, it's found in seawater all around the world. Um, it's endemic in BC. We find it wherever we look. Um, but this study was looking at um, downstream salmon farms and reporting on their ability to detect that virus. Um, and, they, and they found that. Um, and they're making a claim that they believe this is pathogenic. So that goes counter to all the other research that's been done, and we expect there will be further research going forward. Um, what about the uh, stories when we hear about fish farms or salmon farms in Norway and we hear about the industry there that uh, that has had a very strong reaction to, to PRV, to that virus, and, and does link it to, to heart issues and other issues with farm salmon? Yeah, so it's an occasional issue in Norway uh, where there is a different strain in the virus and it causes that and it's managed that. So one of the things that um, there was a point that was made in the discussion on this paper is that they believe this is coming from hatcheries in British Columbia. So the hatcheries that supply farm fish in British Columbia all test their smolts, the young fish, before they're moved out to the ocean for PRV. So we screen for that. We know that it doesn't come out, you know, it doesn't come out of the hatcheries. And so any fish that pick it up, pick it up in, um, in the marine environment. Now, if it was a pathogen, if we, um, there's always the risk with any livestock herd that you could, and this is what we're seeing with avian flu right now, is that you could amplify a pathogen. So um, all salmon farms uh, have veterinarians on staff who are bound by codes of conduct and the ethical aspects, just like any other doctor. Um, that look after sort of their herd health. And they screen for PRV, and we know we don't see an issue for it. And the science, the, the federal government science that we rely on, suggests that this is not a pathogen of risk. Where, we get, where this all gets very muddy, unfortunately, is when we have this out in the public and headlines saying 
that refer to these as pathogens. So that's sort of our first sort of line of discussion is, is this a pathogen or not? Um, and so when we sort of say this is a pathogen over and over again, you know, we, we confuse the public because they start, they've heard it so many times that we just assume it's pathogenic. Um, so it's, so yeah, there's a, a lot of confusion out there and it's really unfortunate. And one of the things that we're seeing is, you know, we have a very academic science paper that makes fairly good claims, but then when it gets reported out in the newspaper and on social media, we say, see things like salmon farms are spewing dangerous viruses and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, so with the plans in BC then, and like you said, there, there are no immediate plans to phase out salmon farms in this province. Different areas or, or different areas have different plans. Uh, the minister uh, saying that, that, that there are not plans at this point or not immediately. What do you see happening then with the future of this industry? Well, the first thing that I think we see doing is is we are as an as a sector are listening to our First Nation partners, and you know, so we, as we uh, commit and practice to reconciliation, you know, we're listening to what the part you know what our partner nations in each of their individual territories want, um, and in some cases, and so all. Um, all companies are moving to operating uh, with nations. In a lot of cases, they're actually transferring the farm sites to the nations. So the nations have control of it, and then they operate on that farm site. So, the, so that if something goes wrong, or the you know the nation feels or you know the nation has control over that site. So that's that's kind of our moving forward. And so within that, we are seeing we expect to see more technological improvements. We're trying to get some guidance from the from the government right of Canada right now on what they see as the outcomes that they want to see in the endpoints. And I think those things are being discussed and there's some confusion over that. But what we are relying on is as, as our First Nation partners practice their rights to self-determination, that those communities will set the standards by which the industry uh, will want. So some, um, in many, some cases now, the companies are actually working under stricter guidelines than the Canadian regulatory guidelines because those are incremental improvements that the First Nations have asked. And I expect that those will continue to evolve as new technologies um, you know, are employed. And one of the things that we're looking for from the federal government is to have enough runway in order to test some of these new technologies, find out which ones are going to work, and have enough time to, um, you know, allow the investment into these things, because this is not an overnight solution. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brian, and talking more uh, about this uh, and, uh, and and bringing us your point of view and, and your from from your uh, place with the BC Salmon Farmers Association on this. I appreciate you joining us and for your time today. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity in any time. A lot of people are planning on shopping tomorrow. It is Black Friday. Was what it's going to look like, though? Will it be in-store shopping? Will it be people getting a head start on what is now often called Cyber Monday? Well, it is likely going to be busy. And as you just heard in that news report, that mall by the airport, they are expecting big crowds there as well. Let's bring on Craig Patterson, founder and publisher of retail media site Retail Insider. Craig, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. How big of a day is it as far as shopping and deals specifically for Canadians? Uh, Much bigger than it was a decade ago. Uh, Black Friday is definitely a phenomenon here in Canada. Um, I think tomorrow is going to be quite uh, busy in stores, but uh, uh, we've seen these sales uh, extend a little bit longer than uh, expected, and uh, quite a bit of this is also happening online, so we'll see how busy the uh, malls are uh, tomorrow. (laughs) Are there specific things that are traditionally uh, where the savings are, are to be found on Black Friday? Oh, you know, a lot of electronics uh, are, are big things. Uh, um, definitely, that's one of them. Uh, uh, certain gifts uh, people are looking for, uh, fashions, are definitely uh, something that we'll see discounts on. But they're saying that we're going to see possibly more discounts than we've seen almost ever, perhaps, uh, just get, given the current economic situation, as well as the fact that a lot of retailers have a lot of stock right now. And I, I saw that as well, that there's just so much stock that they want to get rid of. And, and how much of a driver is that, that retailers might even take, a fin- not a financial hit, I guess, but will, will be willing to really give up on that profit? 
Um, well, I mean, retailers are going to want to make a profit, but they're also going to try to get people into stores. So I do think that uh, uh, some items may act as what we call a loss leader, which means they may lose money off of it, but are hoping to get people into the store to buy something where they would actually make a profit margin, hopefully. So uh, that may be the case where you'll see something that's of a lower price that may not uh, profit uh, the retailer, but they're still hoping to ultimately make a profit from that consumer or somewhere else. For sure. And are we going to see, do you think, is it really going back to that camping out, uh, really getting ready for this one day event and people who have done all of their due diligence and, and staked out exactly what they want and spending those hours perhaps lining up? Uh, you know, I, I sometimes question if it's worth it. I mean, a lot of these deals are also online at the same time. Um, But at the same time, if you're lining up in person, you're guaranteed to get the item. I mean, if you actually get it in your hands, right? Whereas if there's something online, well, you know, it can get lost. You know, we've got some delays that are probably going to be happening in the mail. Uh, There's a little bit of less certainty there. If you can get something in your hand and walk out with it after buying it without getting it stolen subsequently, uh, then you've got the item. And that's something that I think is very attractive to a lot of people in this age of uncertainty. You mentioned things that are also available online and we often or we hear about Cyber Monday. So is is it something that people would wait for Cyber Monday or if you can find it tomorrow and you find it online and you're willing to to take the chances that you just outlined, is it is it worth doing it sooner rather than later? I would say yes, because uh, some items may sell out uh, Black Friday online. Uh, and also, there's a real blurring between Black Friday and Cyber Monday at this point, because over the course of the pandemic, we saw an incredible acceleration in uh, the use of e-commerce or people shopping online. So uh, this is something that's become a habit. And Black Friday has traditionally been that, you know, running and, and you know into the stores is when they've opened and you get that flat screen TV and people are fighting over it. Well, now this has really shifted to an online situation. So yes, there are still people that are going to be shopping physically, but it's almost like the Cyber Monday has really become part of Black Friday. Uh, I know for myself, I plan on buying a few things, but I'm planning on doing them online. I'm not going to be rushing into physical stores myself. Right. I'm going to have a look uh, tomorrow morning a little bit, but that's just more from my own observation. I, I'm not really going to be uh, doing a lot of physical shopping uh, uh, in, in terms of crowds and also with the situation around, there is a really nasty uh, cold going around right now. Uh, people want to be careful not to get it. I just got over it and uh, the cough was terrible. Many people have probably had it already, but there are respiratory illnesses going around, not to mention COVID as well, but uh, uh, big crowds uh, may not be attractive to some people. So it remains to be seen how busy some of the malls are going to be because some people may be cautious uh, Uh, in that regard. No, that's very true. Not everybody is willing to go into a mass of crowds and fight for those those good deals. Um, when, When you talk about kind of, so you have your eye on a few things that you're going to purchase and do some online shopping. Are the deals out there now as far as people will be able to do that homework and and pinpoint what they're going to purchase on Black Friday? Or do you have to wait till the actual day to see what the sales are? Uh, it really depends. A lot of retailers seem to have been advertising these things ahead of time. So we do know uh, uh, what some of these deals are going to be. And, um, you know, be that Amazon or be that Best Buy or be that whatever retailer that people are looking to shop at. But I do think that some retailers also will present some surprises uh, to get people in uh, or to surprise people when they're there and perhaps to induce some purchases. So. Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. So definitely there have been promotions ahead of time, but uh, I think there will be some surprises for some people that go into stores. But uh, again, a lot of stuff has shifted online. And how much of an impact do you think it will have the fact that we're seeing inflation, we're seeing so many things that are necessities, groceries, gasoline, things for people that are so expensive. Could that potentially lead to people cutting back on shopping or is that going to pressure people to take advantage of these sales so they can still perhaps do the holiday shopping that they would like to, but again, get those bargains? A little bit of both. I mean, I know that some people are really looking at being frugal this season. Some people are looking at buying secondhand, even as gifts, uh, which is something we haven't seen quite being as common in the past. But uh, definitely for those that are are looking to also be frugal, they're going to be looking at these deals for Black Friday, um, if if people even have the finances to be buying. And and I think that's something to consider as well, because uh, there is a good chunk of the population right now that is very, very stretched financially, uh, cost of goods have gone up, be it grocery, gasoline, like you said, otherwise. 
um, not to mention interest rates, mortgages have gone up. I mean, if you look at it in aggregate economically, things are very, very challenging for a lot of people. But there are definitely still people out there that have money and are looking to spend and are willing to do it for the holidays. And then there is a demographic out there that isn't nearly as affected by this uh, uh, challenging economic situation. They've got a bit more money and uh, uh, this is not impacting them. So they'll be out shopping or, you know, if they're smart, they'll be online doing this instead. (laughs) Right. From the comfort and safety of your own home doing that. I I would imagine, too, there will be people who take on debt and and probably don't have another option, but will still be taking uh, taking or participating in this. That's always the case. I mean, a lot of people are, you know, in a, in a lot of credit card debt, and that's going to continue, I think. Uh, uh, some Canadians have been very smart about this over time. I don't think it's quite as bad as some think, but definitely uh, uh, there are some people living beyond their means or are, you know, going into debt at least temporarily to buy stuff. And, and that will no doubt change, or that won't be changing, I'm sure, anytime soon. And, and just to kind of go back to something you mentioned about electronics and the different areas where people will be shopping, is this a day where, yes, there will be a lot of people buying gifts, but maybe as well people have put off purchasing that new television or that uh, piece of electronic equipment that uh, they're, they're hoping to get and it all comes down to Black Friday? Definitely, I would say so. I know for myself, I'm looking at purchasing some new podcast equipment. Uh, So it is for work. But nevertheless, we've been putting off that purchase for a little while because we knew that there would be some better deals coming for Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and otherwise. I mean, it's not just a one day or even one weekend event at this point. Now it's something that we've seen for weeks. I've had Black Friday emails from a company I order supplements from, you know, vitamins and whatnot, for since I think the beginning of November, it's been Black Friday. So it's like Black Friday month. It, it, it seems to have really extended, uh, certainly from what we've seen in the past, which was really kind of a, a one-day situation and then Cyber Monday. Uh, does that work, do you think, as well? And even you, you just made me think I, I had a few from websites where I purchase things from on a semi-regular basis with that 30% off is ending soon, or this, that real kind of urgency. Does that work and get people to shop and to, to, to kind of wake up a bit and realize that they may as well take advantage of the deal? I think it does, at least initially, because uh, uh, if a sense of urgency is created, even if that's a fake sense of urgency, which it usually is, uh, (laughs) then then yes, that is going to get people's attention. But also there's that whole story of the boy who cried wolf, which which, is kind of a funny analogy to make. But what I've seen is that, you know, one part of the sale has ended, but then they they start a new one. And it just seemed like once, I won't name the company, but this one company I was getting emails from, it was just like one thing after another where they were either extending the sale or it was something new. And it it seemed to be just a rotation throughout the month that's leading up to the actual Black Friday. So uh, in that situation, you're starting to think, well, geez, you know, when is this going to (laughs) end in terms of the sale? And will it, you know, can I get this anytime that I want? Which isn't going to be the case, of course. But uh, nevertheless, these extended sales... uh, uh, can be extended for too long. So I, I think creating a, a sense of false scarcity as a retailer, which means you're saying there's only a limited amount of this or a limited amount of time to be able to get it, uh, you have to do that carefully. And uh, some retailers probably are just being a little haphazard just to try to make revenue. But some retailers are desperate right now. I mean, there are some companies that could go bankrupt if they don't make it this season. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, you remind me, though, of, of there's a mattress store in my old neighborhood that's uh, been going out of business for about seven years now. So I would imagine they, too, will have big Black Friday sales. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of those cry wolf situations uh, to the extreme. I mean, they, they could be breaking laws almost if they're advertising that at this point for that extended period of time. There's there's laws about you know advertising standards, but I bet that's not for this conversation. I'm sure. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully, uh, anybody that's planning to shop, uh, they've done their homework and they'll be able to get out there or do it online and get those deals. Craig, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Oh, thanks for having me and happy shopping, everyone.